For those who don't know, the Professional Practices Alliance is a, is a collaborative group of independent firms, all with different specialisms, but we have one major thing in common, which is that we all advise professional practices. So let me introduce our speakers for today. We're very pleased to welcome John Aldred from Barclays. John is an industry director in Barclays Business and Professional Services team. He's worked in Barclays corporate for 19 years in various different roles and has, as you imagine, extensive experience of arranging funding for a variety of businesses in, in different structures. Then we have uh, Matt Katz. Matt is a fellow partner of mine in Buzzacott and he heads up our corporate finance team. And with my professional practices group hat on, uh, which is the little team that I head up, Matt and I work together on, on a lot of law firms and architects who, where they want to restructure or merge or raise finance. And Matt is an expert on uh, management buyouts and employee ownership structures and helping businesses put in structures that will help with succession. Then we have Zulon Begum, who is a partner in CM Murray LLP. Zulon advises senior equity partners on a variety of partnership and corporate matters, including mergers and restructuring, and uh, both nationally and internationally. And she advises on gov governance structures, discrimination issues, and, and other regulatory matters. Then we have Rob Millard, who is the founder of the Cambridge Strategy Group, advises law firms, large and small, as, as well as other professional practices, on a variety of strategy and, and management topics. He's been a co-chair of the International Bar Association. He's worked in-house as a business strategist for Linklaters, and he's authored and co-authored several books and spends an increasing amount of time looking at how to align business models to manage the changing landscape of the legal sector. Uh, then we have David Shufflebotham, who set up PepUp Consulting, which is an evaluation and reward consultancy for partners in professional services firms. Uh, he's a partner remuneration specialist and advises on reward arrangements and how they link to partner behaviours and, and contribution. And having headed up HR teams in several law firms, I think he has a very useful insight into performance management issues and how to get the best out of people. So let's get on. What we thought we'd do is set the scene a little bit and go back to look at just a little bit about the benefits of the old partnership model, the model that we're all so familiar with, because external investors will always talk about the value of external investment. Um, but of course, partnerships have, have facilitated fair reward structures for a very long time, and we've all been very used to them. So I wonder whether we could turn to, to Rob, who is always very good at just setting the scene and putting things into context and talk a bit about um, the benefits of the partnership model. Thanks, Claire. I mean, yes, for over a century, partnerships have been very good generators of cash for their owners or for the partners. And I think it's a real question these days how much that same model can become a good cash generator for external owners. As with most things in life, I guess the answer is it depends. But just to set the scene, I want to pose five questions that relate to this topic. And the first one is, how much profit is really generated in a, in a partnership? Equity capital, of course, is the most expensive form of capital. It's far more expensive than, than loan capital or than debt because you, you have to pay back not interest, but the firm has become more valuable and you've got to pay back the, the additional capital gains as well. And it always surprises me when talking to people about profit and partnerships how many people seem to miss the very important point between the, the difference between profit in a normal business, where profit is the cash that is generated after all expenses have been accounted for, and profit in a partnership, which is the cash that is left before the partners are paid. 
the most expensive people are paid. It's astounding sometimes how, how that point is missed, uh, both by some, sometimes by lawyers, but frequently by people talking about investing in partnerships. And they say, wow, it's got a 30% profit margin. But of course, once the partners are paid, it's got a 0% profit margin. So if the partners are earning, say, just pulling a figure out of the air, 500000 a year, and that's going to drop to 400000 after the, uh, the payments are made to the, the new equity holders, or, or let's be blunt, co-owners, those partners are still going to be worth 500000 on the open market. And so they can expect to get calls from headhunters. So golden handcuffs need to be applied. And the question is, what happens when the handcuffs come off? And if we think back to when the Legal Services Act was promulgated more than a decade ago now, there was much talk about uh, what firms might use external capital for. And there were golden hellos and opening new offices and funding mergers. But it was all basically the same kind of business as they were doing before, but bigger and better. And the real question is, how will this additional injection of equity capital be used to generate super profit, to be able to get the partner compensation back to where it was before and also compensate those partners for loss of ownership. I mean, equity ownership is a little bit, a little bit like having extra partners who bring in cash at the beginning who don't write any fees but expect an income over the, the time that they are owners. And then when they exit, they want their money back plus capital gains. So it's incredibly expensive. The second point is what are these outside, these new co-owners actually buying? If you're buying into a legal advisory business, you're not buying fixed assets and passive revenue streams and other things and brands and profit lines like with a normal business. So unless the kinds of services being sold by the firm are agnostic to the professionals that deliver it, in other words, unless the books of business are non-portable and they belong to the firm, not to the individual lawyers, what you're buying is the share of the revenues of the lawyers in the firm. And what happens then when the golden handcuffs come off? The third point is how should risk be assessed? Most businesses, most law firms are heavily dependent on a small number of, of rainmakers and other stars. And these stars become uh, nervous when we go through a fundamental transformation like a merger, or in this case, bringing on external shareholders. And the question is, are they going to stay? Are they going to leave immediately if they can? Or are they going to leave once they, they lose their, their golden handcuffs? And the key, so key person risk is an issue. And looking back even further than the Legal Services Act, 20 years odd, uh, one of the very first in, engagements that I was involved with when I started working with law firms was with one of the big four to assess fair market value of a firm that had sold itself to an investment bank several years before. And the golden handcuffs were now about to come off. And the partners had indicated they either wanted to buy their firm back or they were going to leave. And we uh, came to the conclusion that the, the value of the firm without its partners was very low indeed. And so that led to an entirely different discussion uh, about how much the, the partnership paid to get their firm back. And, and suffice it to say that the figure that was agreed left the, uh, the investor decidedly unhappy. So the fourth point I want to make builds on the first, which is what is the compelling growth strategy? What really is going to be done with this money? How is the, this firm going to be radically better uh, than it was before? Because the same as before, but, uh, but better or bigger is, is really not going to hack it. So if the, the investment is to develop new platforms or other digital assets that are going to build market share in, say, legal operations, which are lawyer agnostic, then that's fine. But you can expect these external owners to be looking for shareholder value as opposed to partner value. 
to optimize their own their, their own value, the, the, the amount of money that they're making out of the firm, different to the partners in the firm, different to the employees in the firm. So the next point, the final point I'm going to talk about is, is the cultural shift. And it's really the appetite of the partners to deal with what I've just described. Will the firm's leadership be able to modify their behavior to be from the collegial approach that you normally get in partnerships to the far harder approach? What if the external investors, for instance, require radical business transformation to unlock more cash out of the business? What if they want the leadership of the firm to be changed and, and they, they have it in their power to achieve that? All in the name of optimizing shareholder value. So I guess my message, if I was to summarize it in a sentence, is that selling part of all of the firm to outside shareholders, outside owners, has its place and it can be very worthwhile, but one has to look very, very carefully from the firm's perspective whether the same can be achieved with, with debt or other cheaper forms of capital or capital that the, the, the partners themselves put in. And from the investor's perspective, what are the risks and, and what is the return you're really going to achieve? Rob, that's very, very useful and very well summarised. Zulon, do you want to add in on the sort of legal aspects of the partnership model? Because I think we all agree that the partnership model has worked very well to date and, and still does. But there are other models available. And what, what are your views on on the, the future of the partnership model? Yeah, so most traditional, what we call traditional tenancy model professional services firms are still structured either in a general partnership or in a, uh, established under the 1890 Partnership Act or as a limited liability partnership. And there are historic reasons for that. For example, solicitors could only be established through partnerships up until a few decades ago. So that's the reason why they started out as that partnerships and they remain so, or, or they've converted to LLP, which is quite similar. What I pinpoint as two key reasons why a lot of those firms still remain as partnerships or LLPs and those are firstly flexibility in the way they're governed and um, how their partners are remunerated. Limited companies tend to be much more prescriptive in the way they have to be governed. There are capital maintenance rules that limit the way partners can be remunerated through distributions of profit and those problems are, are not inherent in the partnership and LLP model because all of that is dealt with by under contract in the partnership or LLP agreement. And in particular, if, if you have a tenancy model partnership with an element of lockstep remuneration, whether it's pure lockstep or modified lockstep, that is much better accommodated in a partnership or LLP model. It, it would be very difficult to replicate that kind of remuneration model in a company with shares. It's not impossible, but it would be extremely difficult and that there would be high administrative burden in creating different classes of shares. And there will also be tax issues around transfer of shares when partners leave and partners join. So all of that makes it very difficult to operate that kind of remuneration model in, in, in the company. So when, when firms are looking at external investment, they also need to think about whether their current structure would be attractive to any potential investor, particularly sophisticated private equity investors or venture capital investors, for example, who are more used to investing in companies, um, limited companies, and have established corporate structures around the limited company. So if you're a general partnership, you're unlikely to be attractive to an external investor, mainly because of the joint and several liability attached with being a general partnership under the 1890 Act. Obviously, LLPs don't have that issue to the same extent, but LLPs are still relatively new on the scene. 
It's only been around for nearly 20 years and many PE firms, venture capital firms, are not used to investing in LLP. So there's a, an element of having to devote some time and resource in educating themselves as to how they do that, how best they can achieve the, the similar kind of um, structures that they're used to um, when using companies. And there, there, there'll also be lastly some regulatory issues around that as well. So some professions have restrictions on non-professionals being owners um, sharing profits in that profession. So the key example is a, is a legal profession can't have non-lawyer ownership of a law firm unless you're structured as, an, structured as an ABS. So those are the kind of key structural things that firms would need to think about if they're looking at external investment and how that might impact on their remuneration models. Thanks, Ula. Yes, I think you said about LLPs not being well understood even after 20 years. They're not well understood. And actually, the model is is quite complicated to understand. If you pick up a set of LLP accounts, we still get asked the same question from clients when they look at, uh, you know, the members note, for example. It, you know, it takes quite a lot to really understand those numbers and how they how they would look if it was a limited company. And it's a question we quite often get asked. If we were to change to a limited company, can you tell us how our, our accounts would look? Because it's just generally better understood. Um, let, let's move on to John from Barclays. In the professional services sector, where do you see the most enthusiasm for external investment? Thank you, Claire. Picking up on that point you made just then, I think it is very true to say that the sort of LLPs and LLP financials are sort of less well understood than perhaps the people this audience would, would realise. I mean, I think the professional services sector in, you know, in the UK is fortunate to have you know, a number of banks that have colleagues or people, people that do make the effort to understand LLPs. But it's not the case that you know, if you took your accounts or your, your business to your average banker, they would necessarily understand immediately how your financials work and the implications of a full distribution model. So just simply because of that, that the corporate structure does have a lot of appeal because it's familiar. But if I think about the clients we work with, the partnerships we work with, I'd absolutely echo what Zulon has just said. There actually is relatively little demand for external investment in a steady state. So in a normal environment, we don't see many of our clients coming to us saying they've made the decision to get some external investment in and potentially incorporate or go down the ABS route. I think where it does happen is if investments require support to change in strategy perhaps or to accelerate plans that the firm has that you know, they can't do without that additional external help. You know, so these will typically be situations where the partner groups concluded that their existing structure and capital base won't support the level of investment required to achieve the plan and perhaps there's you know, some sort of material change happening in the life of the firm. It may well be that a senior group of partners are retiring within a sort of small time window, and that's created some succession issues, but then also meant that the ongoing management team has concluded that perhaps they should look at doing things very differently. Or maybe there is a real need to make an investment, perhaps some of the technology sort of solutions or new ways of working that, that were you know, being discussed at the, at the start of the call. But then actually those can't be funded by you know, additional capital being injected or on balance sheet debt from a bank. So you know, the preference there is for a new shareholder to come and provide equity to help you know, meet those costs. And it may also be, and I think this is perhaps a slightly more an enlightened view that we're starting to see, that the existing team is looking around the market. They're seeing that you know, there are different providers coming into the market and they've decided they don't actually have the necessary skills to thrive 
in this new world and they want additional expertise to come in and support them. And But ideally that new entrant will be an investor who brings capital with them so that you can help fund the expansion of new areas or investments in technology to support those growth objectives. And then I think we will also, you know, we have to conceive there will also be scenarios where the firm is underperforming perhaps because of market conditions, maybe a key practice area has come under pressure or started to decline. And you know, off the back of that, there is a need for urgent help either to fund the gap in working capital or perhaps invest in other practice areas to ensure the survival of the firm. And again, those may well be situations where it makes sense to bring in an external investor as they need capital to the firm. Okay, thanks, John. Matt, can I ask you, because you see a lot of, like John does, you know, different structures and how they approach raising external finance or you know what the attractiveness is to external finances of different structures can we just get your viewpoint on that definitely i think ultimately the first two structures of the partnership and the llp are perfect structures for attracting in bank debt and we see it coming in in both into the entity and also to the partners individually back to back getting personal loans that they're injecting as capital and, and those are the ways that we see many of the you know the traditional partnership being funded for growth and as, as, as john touched on there from variety of different purposes the only one that, that if i'm honest we really properly works going back to what everyone said about you know this of so much of the outside even the, the p world which is very well educated world the llp is mysterious you know, you know what am i actually owning i can't really see us you know a proper share certificate you know it's not registered in the same way as everything else and so what we do see is those firms that want to do things you know, are converting to limited companies and then when they are limited companies they are then trading in their shares in some way or another whether it's and i'll talk talk shortly about employee ownership but you know selling the shares to those external investors you know in, in reality i think in the legal sector and you know compared to say accountancy firms and and architects practices the sort of the conversions of the partnerships and the llps to limited companies my my view is it's slightly lagging behind you know that what other sectors are doing at, at the moment and that might come back to some of the regulation that that exists and, and other barriers but but in, in in reality you know the llp and the partnership aren't perfect vehicles for getting on board proper external investment to help you super, supercharge your practice. Thanks. Now, let's, we, we've tried with these, with these previous webinars to put a poll question in, and it links back to something that David talked about on the first webinar, uh, which is to do with the six areas of, of contribution that David identifies. So which of the following do you think would be most positively affected by external investment? You can only choose one. So we want the one that you think is most positively affected. Oh, we've gone straight to the results for that one. So, well, it's fairly clear, isn't it? Revenue generation appears to be the one that will be most positively affected. Let's do the second one. Which of the following do you think would be most negatively affected by external investment? Again, you can only click one. And then, yes, David, if we can ask you to comment on the results. Just going back to that first one, Claire, where, where we've got the quite strongly favoured sort of revenue generation as the as the area that's going to be the most enhanced. I can see that coming through from an idea that a, an external investor will actually want to see uh, and drive whatever revenue uh, out of the firm that, that it can. The question in my mind there is to what extent does that also have a bearing on client relationships? Because Clearly, if you're going to drive the revenue, you're going to have to uh, find new client relationships or deepen existing client relationships. And that goes back to, I think, the questions on um, that, that Rob raised on, you know, who holds those client relationships? Do they walk out the door if partners defect or when golden handcuffs come off? So whilst 
uh, you can see that that can become a real priority for the business, it might also uh, start to be undermined if the partners feel that uh, that they now you know that the external source of capital uh, is too expensive in terms of the returns that they are getting. The results of the second one have come up, and that is very strongly saying that culture is the thing that would be most negatively affected by external investment. What are your views on that, David? Well, I think that leads into the sort of what we're going to come on to next, uh, Claire. I think in terms of of the sort of model that exists within law firms, the partnership model itself, uh, in its uh, most um, sort of visceral form, if you like, what does the partnership model mean to people? And I often say to my clients, a great partnership is one that has a spirit of partnership, a true spirit of partnership between the partners and a spirited partnership, i.e. they feel really engaged in what the business is doing and how it drives, how it should be driving itself forward. And I think that that sits behind that idea that an external investor, uh, as, as Robert said, they're not writing any business. They've given their money. They're now expecting a return, but without being involved in the day-to-day uh, elements of the business, which has been the traditional way that the partnerships have worked. And in it's a really sort of, really very much a sweat for equity model in professional services partnerships. But it's so much more than that as well, because if you look at the genesis of partnerships, it is a risk sharing model. Uh, and the partners know that they can defray their risk by practicing with other practitioners. Generally, in other areas, you've got the examples of litigators working with uh, corporate financiers, etc., restructuring experts working uh, with people who are looking to, to build businesses. So you've got a risk sharing model at, at, at its heart. It's extremely efficient as a, as a model in the way that it motivates those individuals plays out really, really strongly within within motivational theory around if you are an adherent to Maslow's hierarchy, then the self-actualization of driving to become a partner and be in charge of your own destiny. And more lately, that's been developed into sort of areas around motivations of achievement, power and affiliation. And if you look at, you know, that professional services model as a partnership you really see those coming through in their with their different uh, styles in different partnerships so it's matching the core aspirations of really high performing people and the mechanics and the sort of theory behind uh, tournament models or pyramid structures is really fascinating as well because essentially it plugs into this sort of human nature of okay I'm going to enter into a, a gamble, essentially. I know the odds are not great on me making partner within this particular firm, but a bit like looking at the sort of pyramid structure of, a, of the Premier League in, the, in football and all the other divisions, I'm entering into a tournament, a gamble, if you like. I'm going to try my best. I'm going to shorten the odds as much as I can by working really hard and building up client relationships. And if I don't make it at Liverpool, Manchester City, well, maybe Sheffield Wednesday will, will look at me. Or maybe in my hometown these days, Bristol City uh, might pick me up if I fall down uh, another layer. But there are these multiple tournaments going on, which mean that actually the number of people that have to make partner within a firm to make them work is quite limited. So you've got this really interesting sweat for equity model going on at a personal and, and people-related level. And that comes right back to the survey results, I think, in that poll. It's the cultural aspects that affect the people within the business that 
you're going to have to be really careful of uh, if you're going to go for significant external investment because, as, as Robert said, unless you've got the assets within the business are non-transferable, so you've got a book of business that won't go anywhere because of your brand or because of the technology you're using or, or, or whatever, then the cultural aspects and the way that impacts on the people within that business are going to be critical to the success of your investment. David, can I just add on that again, when we're looking at the money and across goes across all, all sectors and businesses, it is the thing that people should do is be looking at the money, that PE house or whoever it is as a partner as well. Now, they might be bringing slightly different things to the table, but it's really important that the money, if you know, it's the same goes when you're selecting, you know, that you know, they are they are partner. You know, okay, they might not be sweating in, in quite the same way and, and you do create what, you know, envy in, in my mind um, because, because in theory money you know is getting a return it's not having to do any physical work compared to the rest of the partners but in the right way if you look at that money as a, as a proper partner it's just bringing something different to the table and its goals are all aligned with the other partners it can be inverted commas a very successful partner in the business but it is i think it is a lot harder because of the sweat you know because the money isn't sweating in the same way as a normal partner is in a business Oh, for sure. I, I think that that's absolutely right, Matthew. And, and, you know, that's the key. That's the key that unlocks that potential for, for external investment. It's, it's got to be a specific aspect that the partners cannot achieve themselves through their, through their normal efforts, I think. I think external investment, particularly in the legal services sector, has led to not just the diversification of the way law firms and other legal services provide services, the way they provide services, their business models generally, but also in, in the way their remuneration works as well. So you've seen diversification in that sphere. So if you look at the, the kind of key models in the in the legal sector at the moment, you, so alongside the traditional law firm, you've got you've got the likes of Keystone, which are essentially fee sharing umbrella models, collection of sole practitioners working on a um, fee sharing model where they give 30% of their fees to you know, the Keystone entity. And then you have the contract lawyer model, the Uber model, like lawyers on demand, which I think is owned by private equity, um, where you have a collection of mid senior level people working as self-employed contractors. And then lastly, you have the consolidators. So the likes of Knights PLC, who are hoovering up lots of smaller firms, acquiring teams, and those senior lawyers in those firms and teams are effectively senior employees and remunerated as such, and, and will have a combination of both salaries um, and possibly also shares as well. So you've already seen a, the change in, in the way senior lawyers in the legal industry are being remunerated due to the diversification in the way that law firms are now owned and managed and with, a, with external investment. What I think will be the issue will be the traditional tenancy model partnerships which take on external investment and how they adapt in this new environment where they have to create shareholder value. So you have the likes of the traditional firms who have listed, so DWF and Gately, who are effectively, you know, operating, you know, how they did in terms of um, you know, the, the way their progression works within the firm um, as they did before they were listed. But the problem will come um, when, it, when it comes to in retaining and incentivizing the new generation who weren't lucky enough to be at the top when the listing happened and, and those partners crystallized their capital interest. So what happens to the new generation as they come through? And it will be key for those firms to work out the, the, the best way to retain and incentivize those people because 
unless you have that succession of the new generation coming through the ranks to lead the firm in the future and bring in the clients of the future those firms are not going to create the shareholder value that they're envisaging at the moment feels like things used to be very simple because we all, all all of us working in professional practices used to aspire to being partner and that was you know the top of the tree and you've made it and now the generation coming through may not end up working in a partnership at all i've had this conversation with uh, with law firms and probably more so architects that have decided to move to the limited company model and one of the stumbling blocks they have which it seems like a very simple stumbling block is that they will never be a partner in a partnership and and that's something that they actually have to get over and understand that you know it is a different model and it and it is different from the model that we're all all used to I think at this point, if I can bring in Matt, um, we talk about this in the context of law firms quite a lot because that's the, you know, the majority of the of the client base, I suppose, and the majority of the audience quite a lot of the time. But and it's still partnerships are still the preferred structure for law firms, whether eighteen ninety partnerships or or LLPs. But in the architect space, and Matt and I work a lot with with architects, it's very very different for all sorts of different reasons. Matt, can you talk us through why it's different and what the motivations, how the motivations change when there are other forms of, of investment? Yeah, so our architects and, and it's not just architects, surveyors and other practices where um, you know, often we, we start you know, working with them and they may well be traditional partnerships or LLPs or, or limited companies. Again, you know, for, for many of them, the, the, the history of the businesses don't tend not to have the full longevity that the law firms do but you know the, the, co- the common issue that exists across all is around succession and the like and and you know we, we spend a lot of time you know talking to those practices and the partners and, and I, I call them partners although many of them are directors in a limited company and, and as Zulon touched on earlier in the limited companies you end up having all sorts of different shares all over the place where they've tried over the years to create some equity structure that balances everybody out but we you know talk about the succession and, and where where one you know can go to you know, talk about external investment coming in and the the area which is you know, highly attractive to them all at the moment is employee ownership and and, uh, and I think you know it's it's attractive because there isn't necessarily in coming back to the succession bit. You know, often they're run by strong controlling figureheads, and and the second generation you know doesn't necessarily have it in in them either to become the partners or to become the sort of the, the next managing directors, etc. Whereas the employee ownership model you know, allows more to participate in that it doesn't necessarily involve getting external investment into 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 the business but it can do and, and the transactions we see are often supported by by the banks because the the financial investors often want to have too much return on their money but the same problem still still exists i've literally just got three slides if i can share my screen the problem exists very simply that there is only a finite amount of money. And I think you know, Robert touched on this right at the beginning. And, and whether it's EBITDA and, and Robert was exactly right about, you know, you know it's to where, where you draw the line. And if we look at this triangle on the right hand side, basically being it's the profit that the principals all share. There, there's a chunk there, whether it's the 500,000 each or whatever. It, and one can look at this, whether it's the, the EBITDA or you know, the, the profits you know, or whether it's the value of the equity. Traditional partnership, it, it's all there. You know, for employee ownership, one is obviously shifting that 
into the hands of the employees. And yeah, it can be a very, very powerful tool because going back to this sort of sweat for equity type thing, um, as the world moves on, and if you look at the, you know, the mega professional practices and the, and the magic circle law firms, you know, the par- partners aren't really, in my mind, partners, they're shareholders. And it's a very elite club and it's almost impossible to get into unless you're bloody good and, and probably lucky. And the employee ownership model, though, you know, cr- starts creating, and we see it in the architect's world, as, as ways for the employees, that next generation, to start benefiting um, from the sort of, you know, having, a, you know, it's not just a financial return, it's having a say in the way that the business is run. And therefore, although they're not partners and they may never be partners because that option might not be there, it allows them to participate. And, and what we will we'll slowly see, and, and naturally, if you, if you flick between sorry, that model and, and that model, if I was lining up to train as an architect or become a lawyer and I had a choice between joining sorry, that model or that model, as a new person, I would enjoy the employee. Own- I'd probably take the employee ownership structure because my probability of getting a good return you know, is, is far greater. Separately, as I, as I flipped on to a, a couple of times there, you know, what going back to the PE and the, and the financing structures, you, you can see going back to this finite amount of money. And although when you do bring in these financial investors, te- typically the equity value goes up a lot. And there are some you know, massive success stories you know, in terms of and, and wh- wherever they are just for today. And, and last, if you take you know, a, a parallel, for example, you know, FRP, their uh, advisory business and you know, not a law firm, they recently listed, you know, they turn over 63 million pounds. So it's not a massive firm. You know, their market capitalization at the moment is 300 million. So, so in terms of those who were standing at the table, when it listed, to be honest, is if one had been a partner there, the returns are probably beyond your wildest imagination um, compared to, say, the price that they may have bought into in at if they bought in at at all. But what happens you know, is that investor chunk will get larger and larger and larger, and there's less for the principals and less for the employees. And therefore, in practice, you know, what happens is you go right back around to the beginning yeah, and, and one has to start looking again at actually you know, is the traditional partnership, because if you are good, you know, you're going to end up back in the traditional partnership and because that's where you'll maximise your, your earnings. I just whether, whether you or anyone else would just like to chip in on, on how this affects longevity. You know, if, what are the views on the longevity of a partnership or LLP compared to the longevity of a model that has external investment or is a limited company structure? Have we seen any you know, marked differences? In terms of what Matt has uh, outlined there, Partnerships, contrary to common belief, are really actually very dynamic places of business because you have this drive within them of the very best people who back themselves. And I think that is why a lot of law firms, which is my area of expertise, have gone on for a long time, is because they keep on renewing their talent pool because the people who are looking, who are motivated by achievement, by power, by affiliation, it ticks all the boxes for them. So they really go for it. And in really going for it, they drive the business forward again. So it's a self-perpetuating talent bubble, if you like, if you get it right. And in, in a lot of businesses, if you start creating, and, and Zulon covered this, structures that are more static, you actually get a bit more stuck with the people that you've got. And actually, retention is fantastic, but you also need throughput in your business and you need throughput of really good people. And I think that that's... Uh, that's something that the partnership model does engender in terms of its talent management um, aspect. Thanks, David. Yes, I, I would agree with all that. Let's let's turn to John. How how differently does a bank view a business when it has external investment? 
I mean, what do you actually look for and, and how differently do you view it when you've got a, you know, something that's also got some external investment? I think it's fair to say our starting point is the same, you know, in that we will have a client in whatever their corporate structure or shareholder group is, and it will be obviously all banks will be looking to work with that client and be as helpful and relevant as we can. I think banks will become more interested or take a different view or start to take a different view if that firm wants to borrow. And certainly when they're putting debt onto the balance sheet, you know, there's a lot more that a bank will want to understand. And so, for example, if there has been an investment along the lines we've been discussing, the bank will be very keen to understand the role of the investor in that firm and the strategy for the investment you know is the idea that it's a long-term investment and the return will come over a number of years or actually is there a date agreed for example when that investment needs to be repaid um or is there an expectation of a certain level of return along the way i mean um, robert earlier mentioned the idea that you know, partners may have historically enjoyed half a million pounds of distributions each year and then they see that reduced to four hundred thousand in order to pay a return to the investor so that's obviously going to have a have an impact on their their view on their role. So as I say, the bank probably become more interested if the firm wants to borrow, and you know, all lenders will want certainty that a firm can comfortably service those borrowings, you know, both the interest payments and repaying the principal. And in that sense, I think there is a very strong alignment between the lenders and the shareholders, because uh, both both groups want the firm to be successful, continue to generate cash to service the debt, and then generate a return on the investment. So. I think if we, if we took a firm that was con- contemplating um, external investment for the first time, you know, a lot of the areas that we as a, as a lender would consider or want to sort of understand more about are ones we've already discussed during this uh, call. Yeah, so partner fee and remuneration levels and their ongoing incentives. We all understand the full distribution model. Um, it's a pretty simple starting point. Um, and yes, it does sometimes get a bit more complicated because we introduce point structures or lock steps. But Again, it's relatively straightforward to understand how a partner is going to be remunerated and you know, the linkage to their, their inputs, as it were. We move away from that to a salaried model, perhaps with some performance-related pay or you know, dividends. You know, that sort of ongoing, sort of the, the ongoing return to that individual for their work becomes harder to see. And you know, then more concerns perhaps might start to arise about you know, the risk of you know, certain key individual rainmakers being attracted away to other firms because obviously we're in an environment at the moment where the vast majority of professional services firms particularly law firms are still LLPs or, or partnerships that the, the ABS model hasn't really taken off in a big way albeit there are some prominent players that we've referenced um, this morning so you know if you are working for one of those firms or your firm takes investment from them or is acquired by them there are lots of partnership based options for you to look at and and move away to and that, of course, links into culture. And that was clearly evident in the polls that we ran earlier. Um, and this is you know, critical, I think, for a bank um, to understand you know, how will long-standing partners react to devolving much of the decision-making or more, maybe all of the decision-making to effectively a management board. And obviously, that's a construct that ensures that the shareholders or the external shareholder gets their views heard. And I think there's also then, of course, a linkage to client service. And you know, that's, again, critical because that ultimately leads to the firm and retaining its clients, doing more work with them and then generating income, um, which ultimately then converts to cash. And then also the bank may want to understand how the investment is going to impact on the um, day-to-day running of the firm. Clearly there's a link here to culture, but if a shareholder has come in with an agenda or a belief that they can improve the firm in some way, you know, whether that's by looking at cost base, improving lockup, for example, 
know, if those programs or initiatives are executed badly, um, that will be you know, probably quite counterproductive. You know, these are all areas that you know, lenders will want to understand just as much as you know, the existing partners will want to understand. And I think, again, key for the lenders will be to understand you know, what's the experience, what are the qualifications of these new shareholders that are coming in, the investors that are coming in, you know, have they done it before, have they got a track record that speaks to the, the making a success of this new investment. I think, again, something we've touched on just now, ultimately, where, where is this money going to go? Is it going to go you know, into the hands of a small group of senior partners who you know, will then just take that money away um, and have a great retirement? Or will it actually be invested into the firm? So is it going to help build a, a stronger platform for the firm to generate income in the future? And you know, that may well be something that gives a lender confidence to, to lend more or to you know, lend at a level where you know, repayment is going to be partly linked to success of the technology platform, whatever it may be. Thanks, John. Yes, I think I wonder whether some of the external investment that we see is going to increase in terms of bringing in, you know, investing in the technology in firms, which might be brought about by the current situation that we're all in, where, you know, tech driven businesses are, are doing well and, you know, tech is increasingly important to all of us and whether external investment can help bring that into to businesses mm. i mean those are certainly conversations we have with our clients and as, as matthew said earlier there are you know llps are able to borrow from their lenders and you know, we will fund whether that's via you know, partner capital to the partners and to inject it in indirectly or you know, on balance sheet borrowing but sometimes the scale of the change that firms are looking to make or you know the, the cost associated with them you know do mean that rather for than foregoing significant element of their distributions for a number of years they're keen to see if they can fund it either say with bank debt or perhaps as you suggest like some sort of external investment albeit as you're saying that then potentially means that fundamentally change their corporate structure which is yes i think one of the things that we see fairly regularly is firms that believe that a bank is going to bend over themselves to lend because they think their business model is good and they think their finances are good but they don't always understand the way the bank looks at it and particularly lots of businesses don't understand their own balance sheet they concentrate mm. on the profit and loss account side of things and they understand that and they know where all the numbers come from but they don't focus on the balance sheet and don't have a good understanding of it you must see that as well do you where you look at the balance sheet and see a completely different picture from what the firm seems to see well you know ideally we're engaging on a regular basis or speaking on a regular basis so we are have a similar understanding but you know the, remove myself from it slightly we, we will sometimes come across clients who you know, don't think their existing bank understands them and then we'll sort of have a couple of conversations look at their balance sheet and come to the conclusion their existing bank understands them pretty well because perhaps what they've not taken account of is the extent to which the distributions they're paying out to their partners are not necessarily funded by cash that's come into their bank account but by you know, increasing the overdraft they've got and actually a lot of the value those partners have created is uh, caught up in the debtor book um, or even dare i say the whip you know that time and time again you will talk to clients and non-clients and you know that's an area that needs a lot of focus first you know get that get that right you know really kind of get the cash coming in from your collective effort before you then look at you know perhaps putting some debt onto the or more debt onto the balance sheet that needs to be serviced john you, you said exactly what i was about that you know investment you need to look internally first because in many many practices there is an awful lot in the balance sheet that that isn't fully unlocked and this comes back to the culture bit yeah you know, about you know us all as partners and professionals and the like you know 
do shy away from the, the more difficult conversations around fees and debtor collections and stuff like that. And, and actually, there is a wealth of value in many, many practices just sitting there in the balance sheet that, that if people can get it in, often the need for external investment you know, can drop away because all of a sudden you're a cash rich entity and you can spend that money on bringing in other partners or in the technology. Thanks. We've had one question that's come in. What costs or plans do the panel feel are a great reason to seek external investment? I can climb into that. And, and that is that we are seeing a shift in business models away from the tournament that, that David was talking about. And I, the conversation really isn't about the, the firms that are selling high value bespoke legal services in my case, but other kinds of professional services too. But those that are selling services that are becoming at least modified and displaced to a degree by technology, and that technology is sometimes expensive, and it may sometimes involve developing one's own technology, even perhaps acquiring a technology company that owns a particular piece of IP that you want to exploit. And I think that, that's exactly the kind of reason one would look for, for external ownership. So it's a, ra- a radical movement away from a tournament partnership model to something that is uh, far more asset rich because, of course, that IP and the technology itself uh, goes onto the balance sheet. And one of the, the criticisms of, of partnerships uh, from an external funding perspective has, has always been the thinness of their balance sheets. As Matt said, five times revenue as a valuation, that, that's extraordinary, but not uncommon. And perhaps that also speaks to the fact that this is a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, external ownership, certainly in law firms, is a very new phenomenon. And we have yet to see how it's going to play out. Certainly looking at the, um, the market performance of the UK listed firms and also the Australian listed firms, actually, uh, it, it hasn't been great. That, that would be a reason to, to attract investment. But again, a buyer beware, investor beware. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with what Robert's just said. And... I mean, obviously, don't want to be sort of overly dramatic, but you know, it is one of these things where potentially, once you've made the decision to take an investment, it's very hard to go back, or quite pretty hard to go back, particularly as I said, if you've changed a corporate structure along the way. So, for me, it would be because the investment is going to support a long-term strategy for the firm that everyone signed up to. So, so probably suggesting just there, it's because you've recognised that there is a gap in your offering, or you can't continue to compete in the current form. So, you need need external help, need perhaps new technology. So as I say, for me, it's, a, it's about the alignment to the strategy. So that might tap into another question that we've had. Third-party equity might well help shift a firm into a different market position and be value-adding, but it comes to the party with different motivations. So how can the investment appraisal process become more standardised across the sector? I suppose that taps into what both John and Matt have been saying about the external investors looking at things differently from the traditional way of raising internal internal investment or bank investment if i'm honest i can't see tons of standardization happening anytime soon each practice is unique it's made up of the dna of its individual partners and and if one tries to apply some sort of standardization to try and test for investment appraisal or something like that i think i think it will be difficult both you know internally and you know and externally i'm not sure that that right now there's a a big enough market you know for that and therefore i think each case you know will be will be taken as it as it comes if i'm if i'm honest with you is my, my view Okay, uh, one other question. How many firms are taking advantage of the C-bills loans, you know, the coronavirus business interruption loan scheme, uh, to help with working capital shortfalls and help to continue to drive growth despite a COVID impact? 
Yes, I mean, it's something that we've all been talking about with, with clients, and I certainly have some architects' practices that have taken advantage of the C-Bills loans, including some who I would never have thought would be able to get the loan because, frankly, they have pots of cash. And I thought the idea was that the C-Bills loan was for businesses that um, really need some short-term help. But I haven't seen so many law firms going for that. Has anyone else? I haven't, Claire. It's about the last day to get your application in because most banks take 21 days to process it and 30th of September is the, uh, the last day. But, but I haven't seen it in the law firm. And I think possibly because the, you know, the industry continues to be trading pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, and also I can't speak for all lenders and they've all taken a slightly different way approach to how they've applied um, the government's guidance or the business bank's guidance. But you know, the comments that we had obviously discussed with all of our clients at the outset of the crisis and, you know, we obviously reviewed lots of forecasts that painted a pretty, pretty pessimistic picture of how 2020 was going to pay, that, pay out. As Matt's just said, though, the, the experience has been that pretty much all of our law firm clients have traded far, far better than they expected. But along the way, they've reduced distributions to partners, sometimes taking reduced monthly drawings. They've, in some cases, deferred payments to the government. But even that, in those cases, often they've now caught those payments up. But and they've also experienced very high levels or strong levels of billings. So the result has been that they're actually very liquid at the moment in a way that they hadn't expected to be. So therefore haven't seen a need to access any of the government schemes. And I think that's that sort of accurate pretty much across the board for our portfolio. You know, we have instances where we've helped firms with those loans uh, or by providing those loans, but the demand has been far, far lower than I would have anticipated, and albeit. Uh, the firms have actually got, and this is a probably an advantage of the partnership model, have had lots of levers they can pull to preserve cash uh, during this course of this year. Well, maybe the positive to take from that is that the, the firms that we all look after have been better prepared than we, than we thought they were. Well, I'm going to ask everyone to do a few seconds very, very quickly on just a final point. Comment from each of you, please, on the, the positive effects external investment can have on partner contributions. So, uh, David, do you want to start? Yes. I think be very, very specific about what you need the money for. Thank you. Short and sweet. Uh, Rob, over to you. Yeah, just reinforcing that shift in business models uh, from a tournament to a more asset-rich uh, model. There, 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 is, there, 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 there is an argument for external capital. It's just uh, echoing, David, be very specific. One of the positives is the actual the diversification of choices for professionals in the market. So if you take... Well, the different business models now in the legal market, people have the option to get to stay in a tournament model or go to a fee sharing model or go to a contract lawyer model. It just opens up a variety of opportunities in the way people work and, and the way the people are remunerated. Uh, John? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that with all the comments so far. And I think it, it, it does give firms the ability to you know, accelerate any change they need to make, you know, whether that's as market conditions change to go into 2021, the new normal, dare I say, sorry, someone has said it, you know, there is the ability to do that quickly, whereas, you know, partnership model it might take many, many years to fund. And Matt? The positive thing is treat that external investment as a partner and use that partnership to the absolute best of the ability to maximise the return that you're going to get from it. And I think, I think it's if you treat it, treat that external investment in the right way, you're going to have a positive outcome. Lovely. Thank you, everyone. 